Okay, our next speaker is Dr. Peter Walsh, who's already given a talk today about how um, the emergence of Ebola is predictable. Um, Peter Walsh is a lecturer in the Department of Archaeology and Anthropology at the University of Cambridge. His expertise is in uh, wildlife, in particular ape conservation, and is a world expert in gorillas and chimpanzees since 2002. Uh, his background is in politics and economics, so everything can lead to bioense, really, with postgraduate studies at Yale University in biology. Um, his early conservation efforts included design work on the elephant monitoring system, the first scientific surveys of whales in West African water, uh, the first study of invading fire ants in Africa. He also led the report raising the red list status of Western gorillas to critically endangered species. Um, he, he did a lot of work with vaccines as well. Um, he conducted the first trial um, in wild captive chimpanzees. Uh, he also collaborated on the first molecular analysis of human virus pilova into wild apes. And he conducted the first study of the effect of tourism on stress hormones in gorillas and he continues to carry out research on the ecology and evolution uh, of viruses that emerge from gorillas and chimpanzees into humans, HIV, HIV, malaria and Ebola. He has worked in a number of countries, uh, including Gabon, uh, Republic of Congo, Central African Republic and Cameroon, and at Cambridge is now a lecturer in primate quantitative ecology. Peter, welcome. Thank you. Uh, um, you know, when I was invited to come here, I was kind of perplexed because I'm not exactly your mainstream primatologist. Um, and so I started to try to figure out why I'm here. And then I found out that Alex and I had a mutual friend and that he must have told her that either A, I would provide comic relief or, or, or B, that I would cause trouble. So I chose trouble. Uh, and so instead of talking about apes, I'm not going to talk about apes. Instead, I'm going to talk about... Uh, I'm going to talk about theology. Um, and the God I'm going to talk about is, is right there. And unfortunately, he doesn't, he doesn't come from, came, uh, from Oxford. He comes from the other place. Um, and so, so for a long time, biological anthropology has sort of been dominated uh, by Darwin. And, and particularly the idea of adaptation. Right? And if you read a lot of papers are about adaptation. It's sort of the, the central theme of, of research in biological anthropology. And anybody? anybody? David Lapp, uh, who was one of the great evangelists of Darwin in, the, in ecology, and did a, a seminal study on Darwin's finches and a lot of other things, set up the Edward Gray Institute of Orthology here, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, he started at the other place, too. Um, but thereafter, Oxford started to do a lot better, right? Uh, and in fact, uh, Lack's idea sort of morphed into what's been called the socio-ecological model. So if you study social behavior uh, in, in animals, you probably know this. Um, uh, and the idea is that the ecological conditions have a sort of downward effect on, so, you know, top-down effect on social behavior. So the way to understand social behavior is in terms of a, a, um, adaptation to the ecological milieu in which an animal lives. 
right? And the classic studies are all about, you know, there's lots about optimal group, group size and how there's a, a trade-off between the, the, the benefits of, um, of group living, like predator avoidance, and the cost, like uh, feeding competition. And then you study what's the optimal group size given those trade-offs. And that's a classic kind of uh, sociological, ecological paper. Um, the next sort of iteration of that kind of adaptationist program was, was anybody? Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey, right, also Oxford, um, who, with his colleagues, started to promote the idea that the way to do these kinds of studies was using the comparative method. And, and during this period, there were a lot of new methods that were, that were developed that are still being used today and, and allowed uh, us to actually correct for the, the non-independence of tax when doing statistical tests about the, the effect of uh, adaptation on, uh, uh, on social behavior, things like group size. And so that then led the way, anybody? Robin Dunbar, right, also here. Uh, and for studies like Robin's about the, the, the scaling of neocortex ratio with group size, and then in this, ca in this case what we've done is we sort of said the social environment is the ecology of the animal, and it's having, it's an effect on the adaptation, which is our brain and trying to explain why we have such a big brain. And so a lot of that seminal work has been done here, bravo, right? Um, okay, but, but what's happened now is we have some heretics who, who are bringing a, a sort of a new philosophy, um, a new religion, and it, it's not to say that Darwin is no longer a god, he's still a god, but there are other gods, right? And in, oh, um, in particular, uh, this, th this, religious sect is gradually infiltrating from the physical sciences. And I'll sort of, you know, and it's often called by the term network science or complexity theory or nonlinear dynamics. And I'm not gonna go into it a great deal, but I'm gonna give you a few examples here and to try to convince you that this is actually something that you should be paying attention to, right? Um, uh, and the first, oh, uh, the, the first thing I wanted to talk about a little bit about is about scaling, right? And um, if you look at social grouping in, in humans and other animals, well, in humans, what you see is that you know, our social groups are hierarchically nested. So you have, you know, you have a nuclear family group and then uh, a set of siblings and their parents and then first cousins uh, and then you know, grand and grandpa up here, et cetera, and second cousins. And so that then <clears throat> that results in these characteristic sizes of social groups. So like a factor of three or so, so that you have, tend to have groups of this size, which is about uh, three, and then 15, and then 45, but not inter intermediate sizes. So there's a really definite scaling pattern in the sizes that you see in human social organization. In fact, this is a study of, uh, of hunter-gatherers from six, six different hunter-gatherer societies. And this is plot, plotting here Horton order. Think of it as group size, right? And there are these characteristic group sizes that go from one to six. And, and this is just the frequency of each group size. And what you see is that if you do a regression here, but the frequency declines in a way that's very regular, 1.28, 1.19, 1.2, 1.31, about 1.2. And so groups, bigger groups are less frequent than small groups in a very, very predictable way across societies. It's like this, a law, it's law-like almost. And, and so why am I telling you about human hunter-gatherers when I'm supposed to be talking about biological anthropology, right? What's a, that's, so, that's social anthropology, cultural anthropology. It's not biological, except for, Oh, except for this. Elephants, for instance, also have a similar hierarchical scaling in their, in their cultures. And lo and behold, once again, 
usual suspects. If you go and plot that same kind of thing, same kind of Horton order thing from them, lo and behold, elephants, baboons, killer whales also have the same, show the same scaling with about the same coefficient, with the same regression coefficient, right? So the same thing is going on in, in, in elephants and baboons and whales is going on in our social predictable scaling patterns, right? And so this implies that, that whatever is generating those scaling patterns, it did not evolve 10,000 years ago. Did not evolve in the Neolithic, right? It evolved a long, long time ago. And that's why biological anthropology, understanding humans as, a, as an animal, is essential. Let's take it a little bit farther. You know, where does that scaling come from? Well, I, sorry about this animation problem. Um, Bioanth 2.2. Um, Self-organization and nonlinear emergence. That's where it comes from. There's a whole set of theories coming in from physics that deal with how you get those scaling patterns, where they come from. For instance, let's go back to elephants, elephant ranging patterns, okay? Elephants have a home clearing, a water hole where they go to every night. So this is a 24-hour schedule. Uh, days, and this is the kilometers from home, and they go away, and they come back to home at midnight, and they go away, and they do that. every day the same thing. And they go, and they make a little, little rose petal pattern around the place they live, right? That pattern is exactly like you. They, they commute. This is the velocity during the day. The day. They have a, like a 9 o'clock rush hour. They go out to work. They hang around at work. They, they stop, and then they have a 6 o'clock rush hour going home. And then they hang around at home, right? And that just shows, and, then, and furthermore, they commute ballistically. So when they're in that rush hour, when they're close, they're going fast on the highway. And then they get out there, and then they go on the local streets, right? They, they're just like you. Uh, if you look at how far away they tend to move from home, this is on a scale of 1 to 10 kilometers, this is 10 to, 10 to, uh, to, 10 to 100 kilometers. They, are, they have a, this is a power law here with a slope of minus 1. This is the probability that they go some distance away from the home. It's extremely, extremely predictable. On this scale, the slope is minus 1. This, on this scale, the slope is approximately minus 2, right? Okay, why am I showing this to you? These are data from the online social network Foursquare where people go someplace and say, here I am, right? And look at this. Scale uh, 1 to 10 kilometers, slope minus 1. Scale uh, 10 to 100 kilometers, slope minus 2. Exactly the same thing you do. They have exactly the same cognitive rule that tells them where to go that you do. Right? And in fact, why does it go from minus 1 to minus 2? It's because this is, a, this is a map of satellite image of Washington, D.C., and this is the central area. And then these are the, the transportation corridors that go away from the city. So within the core, if you go to somebody's house and then you, you start moving away from the house, this is the number of supermarkets you'll run into as you move away. It increases approximately linearly because supermarkets in the urban core are, are two-dimensionally distributed. The, the number increases linearly, right? You get to the edge of the, uh, uh, of the core, then you're just, you're just only on highways that are linearly moving away, and then the number is, is constant with, with space. Don't worry about that if you don't understand it. There's two people in the room who are going, wow, that's cool. Um, doesn't matter, doesn't matter, the math. What matters is, is that there are immersion effects of the fact that they're doing exactly the same thing we're doing. That behavior has effects on, for instance, the built-in, uh, the social network structure. Structure. So if you, set, if you take this mechanism they're, they're using, which is move to each place I know with the probability inversely proportional to the square of distance, and then, and then you can predict based on these four square members where, when they go to a friend's house. So you take one individual's behavior, you take that rule that says I move with probably one over x squared to anywhere, totally non-social rule, no choice, it'll predict where their friend's houses are. 
And it's because a lot of your interactions are just associated with how much you run into people randomly, right? And so it, this, so it predicts your social network structure. What else does it predict? Well, this is, a, this is a plot, sorry, I don't know if you guys can see, this is, this is supermarkets in lower Manhattan, in New York City, right? And what you see is this sort of like a, a honeycomb pattern, like in a beehive, right? Where you have the, all the, the, the supermarkets are on major roads, and then these are residential areas, right? And, and that, that, once again, this is from, from uh, uh, online data. Well, guess what? This is fruit trees. Elephants are major dispersers of seeds, right? They trample, they make trails. Guess where all the fruit, fruit trees are? It's the same kind of pattern, honeycomb pattern. I have a lot more plots than this, and they all show the same thing. And in fact, who's heard of fractal dimension? If you calculate the fractal dimension of the fruit trees, um, and this is a me measure of clustering, it's the same as the fractal dimension of supermarkets in lower Manhattan, right? So in fact, those fruit trees are the built environment of elephants, because for the last 2,000 years, Elephants have gone, I like that tree over there, and on the way they trampled the earth and they made a trail. They ripped up all the trees on the way. They shit seeds on the ground, and then the same species that they're going to then grows along that trail, right? Furthermore, mom took the babies with her, right, and transmitted the location. It's their cultural heritage, right? Not only is it their built environment, it's their cultural heritage, and, and these elephants that I work with, or actually my friend, I'm, I'm stealing his credit, Steve Blake did all that fun tree work, right? have been in this area for 2,000 years. And the trail network where they live is the built environment, is the cultural heritage over the same time scales that we have our cultural heritage, right? So you know, not only is the genocide that is currently committed against them you know, uh, just appalling, the cutting down of their forests is an act of cultural desecration of unprecedented proportions. We're talking over a million square kilometers. Their cultural heritage has been destroyed, right? Okay, so. Um, so what's going to happen now? Oh, sorry. Uh, where we're going now, so I talked about this movement behavior, individual behavior having emergent effects on social networks, on built environment. Where we need to go now is down. How this works in the brain, because the reason that's a minus one and that's a minus two is because of the way your synapses work, right? And so what we need is a cross-scale integration of people who work in neuroscience and physiology, working with people who work on studying behaviors of individuals with people who work on population level and integrate these things because they've been operating totally independently. People, some people working in a lab doing experiments on neurons, some people doing behavioral observations on chimpanzees in West Africa, and other people doing population dynamic models of disease elsewhere. It's stupid, right? Because these phenomena, you can't understand, oops, sorry, you can't understand what's going on here without understanding what's going on here, and you can't understand what's going on here without understanding what's going on there. And, and that's my prediction about the future. Thank you. <laughs>